I would invite you this morning to open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 9, verses 18 through 34. We'll be picking up where we left off uh, last week. Uh, and as you're finding your way there, just we'll let you know of some things that are going on in the life of the church this week, announcements and that sort of thing. Uh, no activities tonight except for youth. Youth are beginning to meet on Sunday nights uh, starting tonight at 5 o'clock. And so you'll uh, uh, students 7th through 12th grade, you'll want to be here uh, for that. Wednesday night, we have our Children's Discipleship uh, Praise Factory at 6.15. Also an adult uh, prayer time and Bible study that starts at 6.15 as well. So parents, you can come drop off your kids and then stay for a Bible study. It's been a really good time. Really enjoyed uh, uh, going through it. We've, we've called it Q&A uh, because we are asking questions and answering those questions uh, to help us to better ground and communicate our, our, our faith and what we believe and why we believe it grounded in Scripture uh, and be able to look at that a little bit more in depth each week. And it's been enjoyable for each of us who have been, uh, been there and doing that. Also, we have a fall festival coming up at the end of this month, and uh, we have lots of need for uh, volunteers to help out with games and booths and those sorts of things. And so if you've served uh, previously in, in fall festival, volunteered there, would like to again this year, or if you've never served before, but you want to this year, there's a sign-up sheet, I believe, in the foyer, or you can uh, get with Becky Henderson. She's our children's director, and she's uh, kind of coordinating all of that, and she would be happy to place you in a spot uh, to help serve. That's going to be October 29th, I believe, which is a Saturday, um, the Saturday before uh, Reformation Day. Some of you know it as Halloween, and, uh, and that'll be from 4 to 6 uh, p.m., uh, on October 29th. So sign up for Fall Festival. It's going to be a really good time. That should have given you plenty of time to find Matthew chapter 9, verses 18 through 34. And, uh, and by way of introduction, what I really want to do is review what we looked at last week, what we talked about last week, because it plays into the text that we're looking at this week. Remember last week when we were in uh, verses 14 through 17... We saw Jesus using these two images, these two mini parables uh, of, of uh, a patch of unshrunk cloth onto an old garment and, uh, and this, this mini parable of putting new wine into old wineskins. And we said there that the image of these two mini parables is indicating that with Jesus' arrival, something new is happening, which the old covenant ways cannot contain or constrain. The new covenant that Jesus is bringing, the new kingdom that comes with Jesus will bring with it a new kind of covenant living, a new kind of kingdom living. That sort of kingdom living is on, is on full display in the Sermon on the Mount. That's what Jesus is teaching people to do there. It's not an altogether different kind of living from that which occurred under the old covenant, but it, but it is new. And the kind of life that comes as a result of God's grace to sinners through Jesus then leads to a different kind of life that the ritualistic constraints of the old covenant are now inappropriate for. And so here then, in Matthew chapter 9, verses 18 through 34, in, in these three different healing episodes, or, or four, we're going to see that the kingdom of God, as it encroaches, as it invades uh, upon the old ways, upon the old covenant, gives a new picture of, of what this kingdom looks like. And the picture that we see is this. The kingdom of God is a kingdom of trusting citizens, with a king who cares for his people, and whose coming makes enemies. That's what we're going to see as we're going to work through in this passage today. That the coming of the kingdom of God, uh, or, or when the kingdom of God comes, it will be a kingdom of trusting citizens. As citizens that trust their king, a king who cares for his people, and a king who's coming, and a kingdom who's coming naturally makes enemies of those who are opposed, <clears throat> opposed to it. 
Let's read the text this morning. Matthew chapter 9, verses 18 through 34. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for twelve years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, Go away, for the girl is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all that district. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. And when he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I'm able to do this? And they said to him, Yes, Lord. And then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame through all that district. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. Let's pray. Father God, your word is good, and you are good to us to speak to us in words that we can understand. God, that you have used human language to communicate the truth about yourself, the truth about your son Jesus, to us that we might know you, that we might know your Son, and by believing, trusting in Him, in His perfect life lived in our place, in His death in our place on the cross and in His resurrection, that by trust in Him and in Him only, we might have a right relationship with You, God, that we might be adopted into Your family, that we might be born again, experiencing forgiveness of sin and, and eternal life with You. Holy Spirit, give us eyes to see today, give us ears to hear, hearts that are ready to respond in faithful obedience to your word this morning. We ask all of this in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. So we said this, that the coming of God is a, excuse me, the kingdom of God is a kingdom of trusting citizens with a king who cares for his people and whose coming makes enemies. And so we're going to look at each of these statements, each of these clauses in order as we work through this text today. First, the kingdom of God is a kingdom of trusting citizens. The idea here being that Jesus comes bringing a kingdom whose residents have unwavering faith in their king. Jesus comes bringing a kingdom whose residents have unwavering faith in their king. We see this kind of faith on display in at least three different ways in the text that we've read this morning. First, in verses 18 and 19 and then 23 through 26, we have this ruler okay, that comes to Jesus saying, My daughter's just died. Lay your hand on her and she will be well. Here, this individual is just called a ruler. But in Mark chapter 5 and in Luke chapter 8, this same story is told there. And we come to know that he's a ruler of the synagogue there in Capernaum. So he saw to the day-to-day order of, of things that went on in the synagogue, saw to the order of worship and those kinds of things, keeping those things under order. And we learn that his name is Jairus. So I'm going to refer to this man as Jairus because that's who it is. And it's just easier than saying this ruler over and over and over again, okay? So Jairus comes to Jesus and he says, he, he has a request of Jesus, right? My daughter has just died, but come and place your hand on her and she will live. 
It's a very simple statement, simple request from Jairus, but in it is, is an illustration, is a demonstration of the kind of faith that he has in Jesus and in what Jesus is able to do. He says, Jesus, my daughter is dead. She's dead. And resurrection is not a normal thing, okay, in those days. But he knows that Jesus has power to do things that most other people, that nobody else can do. And so he says, Lord, she's dead, but come to my house, lay your hand on her, and she'll live. See the faith in Jairus' request of Jesus. And then even as Jesus is on his way to Jairus' house, we're met with this second character, this woman who's been suffering from a hemorrhage of blood for 12 years. Her hemorrhage is of a, of a very sort of uh, personal type, right? Related to feminine biology and those sorts of things without getting too graphic this morning. Okay? This woman, and she's had it for 12 years, constantly for 12 years. As a result, she's broken. She's desperate. In Mark's gospel, uh, Mark tells us of this woman that she has spent the last 12 years and all of her money seeking physicians to help her with this problem. So she's done everything that she can do. And now she is here uh, at Jesus' feet. As a result of her illness, she has also been ritually unclean this whole time. We could go back to Leviticus and look at the uncleanness rules of, uh, of, of uh, regarding uh, women and during that certain time of the month and those sorts of things. But this woman has been unclean according to that law for 12 years. Not just like once a month for 12, but for 12 consecutive years. She's broken. She's cut off from her community of worship with other Jews and out of her desperation. She comes to Jesus saying this to herself, if only I touch his garment, I will be healed. The word that she uses for healed is actually literally translated saved. If only I touch his garment, I will be saved. And in verse 22, after she touches the garment, Jesus turns and sees her and he proclaims to her what? Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. Your faith has literally saved you. And at at that moment, she is made well. Notice what Jesus says to her. Take heart, daughter. Have courage, right? This is the exact same thing that Jesus said to the paralyzed man who was in uh, Peter's house uh, back at the beginning of Matthew chapter 9 when the paralyzed man was brought in. He looks at me and says, Take heart, son. Your sins are forgiven. Here he says the exact same thing to this woman. Take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. That is to say, pick up your head. No longer be ashamed. Be encouraged. In church, we can, even like this woman, be encouraged because in the midst of her distress, in the midst of her desperation, in the midst of her 12 years of ritual uncleanness and being cut off from community, hidden by her own shame and her own brokenness, Jesus sees her. Jesus sees her. He sees her in her brokenness. He sees her in her desperation. And he tells her, take heart. He tells her, be encouraged. So Jairus shows the kind of faith in Jesus that will, that will be a hallmark of the citizens of Christ's kingdom. This woman who is suffering shows the kind of faith in Jesus and what he's able to do that will be a hallmark of the citizens of his kingdom. And then in verses 27 through 31, we have these two blind men. These two blind men come to Jesus. They follow him into a house saying this, Have mercy on us, son of David. And when he entered the house, the blind men came. To him, Jesus said to them, Do you believe I'm able to do this? And they said, Yes, Lord. And he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. The confession of these blind men is is interesting, right? They say to Jesus, Show mercy on us. 
They confess who he is. Son of David. Son of David. This isn't a term that anybody in uh, Israel, in, uh, in this area at this time, would have used flippantly. Right? That, word, that term, son of David, is a term that has intentionally overt messianic overtones. You don't say son of David without implying the Messiah, without implying God's promised Savior. And so here you have these two blind men saying, have mercy on us, son of David. Have mercy on us, Messiah, promised one, King of Israel. Their confession that he is the son of God is exactly what it sounds like. They believe that he is the one that God will send. Catch the irony here, though, right? Though they are blind, they have the ability to see who Jesus is. Right? Not having eyes to see, they have eyes to see who Jesus really is. Uh, for a more interesting play on this concept, you could turn to John chapter 9 when Jesus heals a man who is born blind. And the interplay between being uh, having physical sight yet spiritual blindness and not having physical sight but yet having spiritual sight is on play there as well. And this sort of irony plays itself out regularly throughout the Gospels. That people who are deprived of physical senses have the ability to see things that those who have eyes cannot see. And having eyes to see, they confess faith in Jesus. When Jesus says, do you believe that I'm able to do this? They say, yes, Lord. And so like the woman before, their healing comes in response to their belief in Jesus. Jesus says to the woman, right, your faith has made you well. He says to these men, according to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes are opened. Faith, church, does not always heal like it does in these instances, okay? These are not prescriptive passages. These are descriptive passages, these passages in the, in the gospel are not telling us what happens every time. They're not prescribing a manner of approaching Jesus for healing. They're telling us how these things happened in Jesus' day to show who Jesus was and what kind of kingdom he was bringing. And so today, and it's been this way throughout history, faith does not always heal. But the believer should be confident in praying in full faith for healing, knowing that Jesus can heal. What is true from this passage uh, is, is not that faith always heals, but what is true from this passage is that Jesus can heal. And so if we are to approach Jesus for healing, we do it in full faith that he can heal. And this kind of faithful following, faithful citizenship in his kingdom, is what Jesus is coming to to. To show. It's the kind of kingdom he's coming to inaugurate. It'll be full of people who believe him, who trust him. And faithful followers, being as they are, will then spread the news of the kingdom. Look at verse 26. After he heals the girl or raises the girl from the dead and, and heals this woman, the report of this went throughout all that district. Verse 31, he heals the blind men, right? And he tells them, see to it that nobody knows about this. And they immediately disobeyed Jesus and went away and spread his fame throughout all that district. They can't help. These faithful followers cannot help but share about what their king has done. Even in verse 33, after he heals this demoniac, this demon-possessed man that we'll look at in a little bit more depth in just a moment. At the end of verse 33, the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. When Jesus does what only Jesus can do, those who trust in him, believe in him, have eyes to see what it is that he's doing and who it is that he is. They cannot help but herald that word uh, everywhere that they go. So then, church, for us today, because Christ has all authority, because he has authority over sickness, because he has authority over death, because he is the king who is coming, because we are citizens of that kingdom as those who trust in Jesus, 
Because he has all authority, trust Jesus. We must trust Jesus as a matter of first resort. As a matter of first resort. Look at those that are trusting Jesus as a matter of last resort in this passage. Jairus, his daughter, is dead. There's nothing that doctors can do for her anymore. There's nothing that the crowd of mourners and and instrumentalists uh, that have been hired to mourn this daughter's death uh, at his house, there's nothing that they can do for her. And so as a matter of last resort, he goes to Jesus. This woman who's been suffering with bleeding for 12 years has nothing left to do. She spent all of her money trying to find doctors who can treat her illness, and none of them have been able to fix her problem. And so as a matter of last resort, even in her shame and desperation, she, she goes up behind behind Jesus, right? As a matter of last resort to touch his cloak that she might be healed. But we, church, knowing who this Jesus is, reading about who this Jesus is and what he's able to do here in these verses, we then ought to trust him not as a matter of last resort, but as a matter of first resort. Because we know what he's able of doing. Because we know that he is the king. Because we know what he can do and desires to do. Here in this Uh, In these verses, at least two different times, Jesus says, in one way, shape, or form, your faith has healed you. Your faith has healed you. One scholar says this about faith. Faith is that state of awareness, receptivity, and readiness for appropriate action, which opens one to the working of the powers of the kingdom of God in the ministry of Jesus. In this way, church, then, faith is the new wineskins that we talked about last week. It's the new wineskins that are prepared for the new wine of the kingdom of God at the incarnation of Christ. It is faith that is to be the the boundary, the, the container, if you will, of this kind of new relationship with God. Faith apart from the law, faith in the fulfillment in the, of the promise of salvation that is in Christ. That is the kind of uh, constraint, the kind of boundary for relationship with God in this kingdom that Christ brings. It is faith that is the bounds of, of that. And so as citizens of the kingdom, we are to be citizens that have unwavering faith in our king. The kingdom of God is a kingdom with faithful, with trusting citizens. It's also a kingdom with a king who cares for his people. And we see this idea throughout the text that this, that Jesus comes bringing a kingdom characterized by merciful care. Jesus comes bringing a kingdom characterized by merciful care. First, we see this. His merciful care is characterized in that he heals without favoritism. Jesus heals without favoritism. Note in these verses who Jesus goes to. First, a ruler of the synagogue and his dead daughter, who she being dead would have been ritually unclean. If Jesus touches the dead person, she, he, he then would be ceremonially uh, unclean for seven days. A woman with a chronic illness that has rendered her ceremonially unclean for 12 years. Who, if Jesus touches her, would also be uh, considered unclean for a period of at least seven days. Jesus goes to two disabled beggars, two blind men, whose only source of income was to sit in well-traveled places and ask for money. And then fourth, in in verse 32, he goes to, or he is met by, a man who is mute and possibly even deaf due to the spiritual oppression of this demon. Now, let's look at this man who's possessed by this demon. This is not at all unlike the the men from uh, from Gadara that we looked at in Matthew chapter 8, these two demon-possessed men. In in, In this instance, Jesus extends his healing to a man who's being spiritually and physically oppressed by demonic forces. Okay, there's there's at least one demon in this man that is keeping him from being able to speak. 
And, and some believe even that word mute in the Greek means also that he, was, that he was deaf. So not only could he not speak, but he also could not hear. These events of Jesus casting demons out of people are, are interesting events in his life because very often he seems to act with little interaction with the demon-possessed person themselves or even with the demons possessing them. I remember back in Matthew chapter 8, the demons come to... Jesus says one word in this whole, in this whole thing, right? The demons come to him and these demons-possessed men. They say, if you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And Jesus, all he says to the demons is, Go. And they go, right? Very uh, rarely does Jesus interact all that often with the demons. What seems to be the case, though, in every instance, whether it's in Matthew chapter 8 or here in Matthew chapter 9, with these demon-possessed people, is that Jesus' compassion for the spiritually oppressed is not greater than his compassion for others, it's just, but it's different. It's almost as if seeing the spiritually oppressed, these people possessed by demons... Jesus desires to free them from their oppression solely for the purpose of their spiritual freedom. It's really quite amazing. Right? There are people who are oppressed by demons in, in the Gospels that Jesus meets with, and he very often has little to no interaction with the actual person or even with the demon. He just he heals it without asking, do you believe I can do this? Without the individual saying, yes, I believe you can do this. Jesus just does it. Why? I think because out of his compassion for this poor soul who's being tormented by this demon, Jesus just wants that soul to be free. Wants that individual to be free from that oppression. Now, that doesn't mean that his healing is saving in a spiritual sense, but what he's at least doing is freeing them to be able to then express faith in who he is. Jesus heals without favoritism. We know this because he goes to a ruler of the synagogue, a well-respected person in the community. And touches his dead daughter. He heals a woman that's been ceremonially unclean for 12 years. He goes to two disabled beggars and a man who's possessed by a demon. And not only this, that if we look back at where we've been before in the, in the book of Matthew, we see who else Jesus goes to, who else Jesus has interactions with and heals. A Roman centurion whose servant was paralyzed and suffering. He touches a leper, a person with a contagious skin disease. Jesus touches Peter's mother-in-law. And we talked about how... Um, out of sorts it would be for any Jewish man to touch any woman that was not his own mother or his wife, right? And so here Jesus touches Peter's mother-in-law and makes her well. He uh, heals the paralytic in earlier in chapter 9 and two other demon-possessed men in Matthew chapter 8. Does this look like a Jesus who heals with favoritism? No. He is healing people of all walks of life in all sorts of, with all sorts of social statuses and social backgrounds, even ethnic backgrounds, and without favoritism at all. Why? Because that's the kind of king that he is. He is a king who cares for people. So he heals without favoritism, but also, and catch this, Jesus heals with caring touch. He heals with caring touch. In verse 21, he touches the dead girl, takes her by the hand. In verse 25, he allows this woman to touch him to be healed. In verse 29, he touches these two blind men and they are healed. I think it's really easy, really easy to overlook this fact that Jesus heals with caring touch. But notice, notice that Jesus is regularly making a habit of doing what the religious rulers, what the Pharisees were emphatically avoiding which is touching marginalized, forgotten, ceremonially unclean people. The people who were not being touched by those who, who were supposed followers and, and le- followers of God and, and leaders of the Jews, 
who they were not touching these people who desperately needed touch, Jesus is going to and touching them. I think this is significant for the fact that Jesus is going against the Pharisees' expectations. I mean, not just going against them. I mean, he's, he's just defying the Pharisees' expectations at every turn. It's significant for that fact, but, but more so for the very impact that physical touch has on a person. Physical touch has an impact on people. Now, I'm not a toucher, okay? I'm not a, I'm not a touchy-feely guy. That's not one of my love languages, okay? For those of you that have done the love language thing, right? Physical touch is not necessarily my thing. But look, there are times when I need a hug from my daughter or from my wife or I need a, a friendly hand on my shoulder in a, in a time of grief or mourning. And my guess is that every single one of you have been in a position like that in your life at some point or another. Where even if you're not a toucher, right, you, you, just, you need someone to touch you. You need a hug from a friend. You need someone to hold your hand in the middle of, of sadness or, or grief. Physical touch does a lot of things. It, it shows people that we care about them. Shows people that we love them, that we're, that we're there in that moment with them. Husbands, if you love your wives, you hold her hand at the movies or, or as you're walking through Dillard's on whatever it is that she's shopping for spree, right? Um, which, by the way, my wife does not drag me through Dillard's. Thank you, honey. Uh, right? But you hold your wife's hand. You put your arm around her. Parents, if you have kids, you hug your kids. You hold them close. You know, you squeeze their little faces until their heads pop because they're so cute. Right? I mean, just is what we do for people that we love. We touch them. Physical touch is just, it's, it's part of that. Friend, if you've ever visited someone in the hospital when they're sick and hurting, sometimes there's nothing you can say in that moment. The most you can do is just sit by their bed and hold their hand and watch days of our lives with them or whatever happens to be on TV. I mean, just being present, holding their hand in that moment, right? Some, seeing someone who's hurting, who's, who's just had a rough week, right? Just giving them a hug because you know they need it, even if they've not asked for it, right? Because they know they need it too. And that's what Jesus is doing. Because Jesus is a king who cares for his people, who cares mercifully for his, for his people. He extends physical touch to those who need it. And in so doing, he's fulfilling what, is, what has been said of his ministry, what Matthew says of his ministry. Um, uh, Matthew chapter 4, verses 23 through 25. Uh, Matthew kind of sums up what, what's about to happen, what we've just been looking at the last several weeks. It says, And he went through all Galilee, preaching and teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread, spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. This is not at all unlike what Jesus has said to the Pharisees, uh, last, uh, what we looked at last week in Matthew chapter 9, verse 13. When Jesus is sitting around the table with sinners and tax collectors and those that are far from God, and the Pharisees are like, dude, why are you doing this? You know this is not appropriate. Jesus responds to them and says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy. And not sacrifice. For I came to call, came not to call the righteous, but to call sinners. Here in these passages, as Jesus is healing these people, as his kingdom is encroaching upon uh, the, the old ways, the strongholds of the Pharisees, so to speak, he is doing so with mercy, specifically through touching those who need that healing touch. So then, church, as followers of Jesus, in action, in, in, in active response to what we've seen here, as followers of Jesus, we must then extend the caring touch of Jesus to a hurting world. 
We must, as the church. This is who our king is, and we as citizens of the kingdom, trusting the king, what he's done for us, and his sacrificial death, and in his resurrection on our behalf, we also do what the king does. The king offers merciful care through touching people who need just that physical presence of somebody else with them. We go and we do the same. This gets back to what we talked about last week, that, that being uh, part of the, the kingdom of God, being, being a, a Christian is more than just being friendly. It's, it's being caring. It's more than just being polite. It's being loving. It's more than just saying, I'll pray for you. It's putting your arm around somebody and shedding tears with them. As such, we have a, we have a directive here in Scripture by Jesus and the example that he sets that we are to go and extend the caring, the physical caring touch of Jesus to a hurting world. We do well to ask ourselves, I think, the, the question regularly, who in my life needs the mercy of Christ shown to them? Or we live in a world that's broken and broken by sin and, and in a world full of, of sinful people who are sinners walking in sin, right? But even they need the, the merciful, the caring touch of Jesus that comes through us. There are those who are victims of circumstance, those orphans in foreign nations who have no physical care, no physical touch, because they're in orphanages that are overcrowded and understaffed, and they go years without ever being held by another human being. People with special needs in, in our community, right? people with cognitive and physical disabilities who just, who, who just need the caring touch of someone to come alongside them in the middle of whatever it is, they're just to show, hey, I love you because Christ loves me the diseased of the world. There are places in the world where people are still suffering with things like tuberculosis, right? And Ebola, HIV or AIDS. And in these places, knowing that these diseases are highly communicable, these people become outcasts and, and often will go years without ever having another human being touch them, hold their hand, pray for them, cry with them. I'm reminded of the doctor, Kent Brantley, who's working with uh, Doctors Without Borders. No, it wasn't Doctors Without Borders. It was a, a medical mission agency. Kent Brantley, who went to West Africa during the middle of the Ebola outbreak about a year, year and a half ago. And as a doctor, he's there touching, ministering, uh, giving care to those who are affected by Ebola, who, who are infected with Ebola. And in that process, Kent Brantley himself contracted Ebola. Came back to the States, was, was treated in the States with an experimental drug, and uh, by the grace of God, and, and he would say the same, he was healed, right? And so he's, now he's free of Ebola. But, but look at the, the lengths to which, and Kent Brantley is a believer, who said the reason, I, everybody's saying, why are you going to, to West Africa where Ebola is everywhere, but everybody's catching it, it's a huge outbreak, people are dying left, why are you going? And his response is, because Christ is my king and I must. Kent Brantley risked his life. He's a married man with kids, risked his own life to extend the caring touch of Jesus to those that needed it. How much more than church ought we to do that for those who are not necessarily suffering with Ebola or HIV AIDS or tuberculosis, but, but those among us who just need a caring touch at the right time because Christ is king and it's what he did. The coming of the kingdom is, is uh, or the kingdom that comes, excuse me, is, is a kingdom that has... Uh, faithful citizens, citizens who trust their king. It's a kingdom with a king who cares for his people. And finally, it's a kingdom and a king whose coming makes enemies. 
Right? Make no doubt about this. The, the kingdom of God that is coming, that is encroaching upon the world in Jesus, makes enemies. And the idea that we see here in the text is that the kingdom of Jesus, as it overthrows sin and death and Satan, will and does make enemies of those who are content or complacent in their slavery to sin and death and Satan. As Jesus overthrows sin and death and Satan, those who oppose him will then also show their true allegiances. And here this is on display in the response of the Pharisees to what Jesus does in casting the demon out of this man who is mute and deaf. Let's read those verses again. 32, as they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. The response of the crowd here in this instance, those that witness the healing, witness this exorcism, is favorable, right? Never has anything like this ever been done in Israel before. This is cool. This is new. This is, this is unique. This is exciting. What Jesus is doing is compelling to the point that people are audibly remarking about how compelling it is. But in contrast to the crowd, the Pharisees respond, not with favorability, but with incredulity. They say, by the ruler of demons, he casts out demons. Now catch that, that to this point, there's no proof of their claims, right? Jesus has given them no evidence that this is actually even true. That he's actually casting out demons by the prince of demons. Or that is to say, he's casting out the, the, the agents of Satan in the name of Satan, right? That's not happening. And in Luke chapter 11, you can turn there uh, this week when you have free time. You can see Jesus refuting their claim and why it's so silly. Saying, right, a house divided against itself cannot stand, right? Why would Satan cast out his own agents, his own, his own servants? It just doesn't make any sense. Nevertheless... Nevertheless, the Pharisees have got to try to find something that they can pin on Jesus. They've got to try to find something to corroborate their distrust of him, to corroborate their hatred of Jesus. And the only thing they can grab on here at this point is like, oh, he must be casting out demons by the prince of demons. He's casting out demons by Satan's name. We know that they're wrong. We know that they're grasping at straws. Jesus doesn't even respond uh, to their claim at this point. But what we see is that these Pharisees who who are opposing Jesus and his work become, they are the personification of those old wineskins that we talked about last week. Old wineskins trying to contain new wine. That is to say the, the kingdom of God that Jesus inaugurates and over which he reigns is now encroaching on their self righteousness and on their self righteous empire. Jesus is encroaching. His rule is is stretching them in ways that they cannot be stretched. And so in what what will ultimately be a fruitless effort, they try to undermine the credibility of Jesus. They try to undermine the credibility of the king. Say he's doing something by evil forces. He's doing good things by evil forces. And this is what happens every time we are convicted of sin in our lives. Every time we see the truth of, of Christ and who he is and what he's able to do, Right? We are convicted over it. We are called to make a decision. And that's what's happening with these Pharisees. It happens with us every time we're convicted of something which is true about Christ that is not true in our lives. Conviction, then, is this process of coming to the knowledge that you are, that we are, presently at odds with God in some area of your life. Perhaps every area. Conviction happens when the Holy Spirit pushes the edges of the kingdom of God into our hearts. 
Right? When the kingdom of God begins to encroach upon your heart, upon your soul, it will stretch you. It will challenge you. And one of two things happens. Either one, you heed that conviction. You see the kingdom for what it is. You see the king for who he is. A king who has compassion for all who trust fully in him. Or you do the other. You rebel against it. You rebel against that conviction. You see the kingdom not for what it is, but you see the kingdom for what it threatens. It threatens your human wisdom. It threatens your personal authority and autonomy to do and think and speak as you think is best. The kingdom of God is a threat. It is a threat to the control that we have over our own lives and even over the lives of others. Christ's kingdom is a threat to our personal autonomy. If you choose to resist this king and his kingdom, you cannot help but keep, you cannot help, excuse me, from continuing to be an enemy of the king. When conviction comes, you have one of two responses. Heed the conviction, respond in faith, or rebel against it. Not to see the kingdom for what it is, not to see the king for who he is, but only to see the king and the kingdom for what they threaten. And so then, in Jesus' ministry, as the kingdom of God advances through his ministry, people then become divided all over the place around Jesus in his earthly ministry. Matthew 10, verses 32 and 33, we'll be here in a few weeks, says this, So everyone who, this is what Jesus says, Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. That is to say, Jesus is telling those who are now gathering around him, you've got one of two things to do, right? You can trust me and follow me, acknowledge me as king, and I will acknowledge you as a citizen of the kingdom before my father. Or you can continue to rebel against me, and I will not acknowledge you uh, before my father. That is to say... You can choose to follow Christ and be saved, be forgiven of sin, or you can continue to rebel against Christ, to follow your own authority, your own wisdom, your own control of your own life, and be uh, separated from God for all eternity. You wouldn't think that's a difficult choice to make. And yet, and yet, people choose rebellion all the time. Even believers choose rebellion for seasons of life and in different places all the time because our hearts are deceitful. Our hearts are sinful and sick. The only cure for our heart is to have a new one. And yet Jesus, when his kingdom comes, makes enemies. It divides people. John 3, 16 through 20. John 3, 16, one of our favorite verses in all of the Bible. We're so quick to quote that, but we often forget what comes after it in 17, 18, 19, and 20. John three sixteen. For God loved the world in this way, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have, ever, uh, have eternal life. I, I went into uh, memorization mode, everlasting life. Okay, we like that. Okay, and we should. There's really good news in John three sixteen. But then read John 17 and following. For God did not send his, world in, send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Verse 18 and 19. Don't miss these. Jesus says, Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. 
For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. When Jesus brings his kingdom, he divides people. And the two groups are these, those that trust in him, follow him as king, give their lives entirely to him, and those who continue to walk in rebellion against the king. Because they don't like the king. They, don't, they, they like their sin more than they like Christ's presence. They like their autonomy more than they like submission to the one true king of the universe. And that choice gets made all the time. And so, friends, whether you're a Christian here today or not, the, the point of this passage, the, the, the application where the rubber meets the road in your life is this, that face-to-face with the king, we must, you must, make a decision between faith and rebellion. You must make a decision because the kingdom makes enemies. The king makes enemies. Using this text as a mirror to your own soul today, ask yourself this. What is, the heart, what is my heartfelt response to Christ as King today? The text is a mirror to us, and we should see ourselves in, in this text, in this passage, as one of two people. Those who are responding favorably, saying, never has anything like this been seen in Israel. Right? Come see this King who does these things. Or we respond like the Pharisees in rebellion, saying, he cast out demons by the prince of demons. How do you respond to the text today? Is trust or rebellion? Because even religious people, you know, can rebel against God in this way. The Pharisees, who were the most religious, who were the best Jews of the day, they ticked all the religious boxes. They never missed a day in Sunday school. And yet their hearts were ever and always against Jesus, always opposed to Christ. And so we, church, even today, many of us who have been believers for a long time and in the church for a long time, we do well to look at this text as a mirror to our own souls to see which side we are on. Are we truly trusting Christ with all that we have? His perfect life, His death on the cross, His resurrection from the dead for our salvation from sin. Or are we continuing to rebel against it? The colonial American pastor, Jonathan Edwards, once wrote that the evidence of a truly saved person is in their universal obedience to Christ. And by that he says, and here I'm paraphrasing because the language he used 300 years ago was a little bit more difficult to understand. So for readability's sake, this is what Jonathan Edwards says. A man can't be said to be a true believer only because he is not a thief, nor oppressive, nor a cheat, nor a drunk, or a habitual bar crawler, nor a pimp or violent not one who abandons his family or who is uncontrollably foul-mouthed, nor a liar, nor given to anger, nor disrespect. He says, the man who goes this far to not do these things and no farther is no true follower of Christ. He is merely religious like these Pharisees. Instead, the one who is truly changed by faith in Christ and the mercy and grace of God to him in Christ will go beyond the do-nots of religion and practice the do's of faith. He will be clear-minded, prayerful, humble, meek, forgiving, peaceful, respectful, gracious, benevolent, merciful, generously loving and seeking to do good. The law of Christ is in the do's of faith, not in the do-nots of religion. And so if your life is marked by all the do-nots of religion and, and you think you're good with God because of all the things you're not doing, 
understand that that is the wrong ground, that is the wrong foundation for any sort of salvation or security, any, any confidence in faith. Rather, is your life marked by the dues of faith, of being clear-minded, prayerful, humble, meek, forgiving, peaceful, respectful, gracious, benevolent, merciful, generously loving and seeking to do good. Christian today, church today, let us then not walk in the disguised rebellion of religious do-nodding, but let us then be found faithful followers of Jesus who care mercifully for the hurting by being faith-filled doers. That's what the text is calling us to do today. The kingdom of God is one that is filled with trusting citizens, with a king who cares mercifully for his people, and whose coming makes enemies, whose, whose coming requires a decision. This much is true. Having heard the gospel today, having seen who Christ is as king, the kingdom is encroaching upon your life today. Every single one of us. The kingdom is encroaching. It's pushing into your life today. And we each have one of two responses. Either one, to trust in Christ and Christ alone for salvation from sin as King of kings and Lord of lords and to walk in faithful obedience to him, doing the things that our king did. Or choose to continue to rebel, to turn against him, to walk the other direction and experience eternal and everlasting separation from God. What will be your choice today? Danny and the praise team are going to come and lead us in a time of response. I pray you use the text as a mirror to your own soul today to know if you are trusting Christ or if you are rebelling and to respond appropriately the way the text leads us. Let's pray.